Welcome to the show. Daniel Radcliffe doesn't want you to hear. It's merrily we roll along, roll along. It's monkeys and playbills. Almost better than the original. Incredible. I've been saving that all week. That was so incredible. That's the only prep I did on this episode. I am so impressed. That was Paul DeGurse. And that's Jillian Willems. And over there, we've got producer Daphne. Running the board. And this is Monkeys and Playbills, the podcast where we explore Broadway shows that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today we're talking about Stephen Sondheim's 1981 flop, Merrily We Roll Along. Jill's favorite musical. Yep, probably. Probably. Mm-hmm. My potentially new favorite musical. I'll, we can, <gasps> wow. I can't wait to talk a lot about my limited history with this show and how mm-hmm. I feel right now. And also a show with a lot of weird history behind it. So many strange turns of events. Before we start, we should acknowledge that this episode is produced with the generous support from the Canada Council for the Arts and in collaboration with the Crescent Arts Centre. Thank you, Daddy Canada Council. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is one of those episodes where I've got so many thoughts floating around in my Mm -hmm. head. I don't know how to just get us started. Okay, here we go. This is what we'll do. I will give us a rundown of dates. Great. And then we'll jump into our personal experiences with the show. Great idea. Because I think that will inform a lot of what's to come. Yes. Merrily We Roll Along, also known as Merrily We Roll Along the Play, just before that. (laughs) Previews began at the Alvin Theatre on October 8th, 1981. It opened on November 16th, 1981, and it closed on November 28th, 1981, after 44 previews and 16 performances. 16 performances. Yep. So that's like, what, two weeks? This is Sondheim in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. This is his follow-up to Sweeney. This is between Sweeney and Sunday. Correct. Arguably, his yeah. a very good case to be made for his two best works. Mm-hmm. And in the middle, a show, <laughs> we'll talk about um, what it is and what it isn't, yeah. but didn't even, like, ran for two weeks. I might call it a blip. Yeah, a right? blip is exactly like, what it is. Like, when you look at the trajectory of, of his career charted out, it, it is but a blip. Is that his biggest... Broadway flop? I think so. Not counting things that didn't ever actually hit Broadway. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is like the the sort of like history or lore surrounding it is that it, it yeah. it's in fact his his biggest flop. So that leads me to my personal experience with this show, which <gasps> is which is much less than yours from what mm-hmm. I understand. Yep. When I was in high school, I decided my my hyper obsession of the moment was going to be musicals. This is mm. I, I hyper obsess about <laughs> things, about music, about art, and I collect all the information in my head, and then I barf it out on a podcast. Yeah, as one does. And in high school, it was musicals, and since then, I've gone through a couple other like musical hyper focus. Mm-hmm. Anyways, in high school, my dear friend and past and future guest of the podcast, Tatiana Carnavalli, mm. would burn me CDs. <laughs> I because um, she had an enormous collection from um, past and future guest of the podcast, Ryan Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, probably from you as well. You were. Um, yeah, although I would say most of my CDs came from Ryan, sure. if, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so I'd be like, hey, I'm going on a road trip with my family this <laughs> Christmas break. Can you burn me three musicals? <laughs> One of the ones I want to listen to is I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, because I've heard that that's the longest running off-Broadway show. <laughs> and Tatiana would go, great, absolutely. I'm also going to burn you Children of Eden and Merrily We Roll I'll Along. I'll burn you two epics. I'll burn you two to good go shows. With. <laughs> yeah. 
So all I knew about Merrily was that this was Stephen Sondheim's flop. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I'd read on the Broadway World message boards or whatever. Yes. Because <laughs> that's what the <laughs> how you got the information at that point in time. Correct. So I think Tat must have burned me the OBC, mm-hmm. which is... I, I've listened to twice now um, in preparation for the, this episode, and I love, spoiler alert, but at the time, it's a, it's a little dense, a little weird to get through. Totally. And so I listened to it once on a car ride with my parents when I was like 17, and I was like, all right, now I should listen to like Sweeney and Sunday to like the important musicals. Mm. And I it was closed, your gateway. I closed the book on Merrily <laughs> yeah. until this episode. Wow. Right? So like 16, 16 years, 17 years, years listen to the OBC once. I've actually say the last bit of history I have with it is I was done university mm-hmm. and I started again with um, Ryan Siegel comes into this conversation again. Tatiana comes into this conversation again. We had just produced an independent production of Avenue Q, the first Canadian mm-hmm. production of Avenue Q. We'd all as like 22 year olds had thrown it up. It was a huge success. <laughs> and the next year, RMTC was doing Sondheim Fest. So we were talking about what musical should we produce in Sondheim Fest. And it kept on coming up. Jill wants to do Merrily We Roll Along. Oh, yeah. We should talk about doing Merrily. Um... <laughs> So that Jill can be involved with it. That's so funny. I didn't, I guess I didn't realize those conversations were swirling around at that time. Okay, but what about, so why do you need to be involved in Merrily if we do Merrily in 2012? It's in my rider that every, every Canadian production of Merrily, I need to be involved in some capacity. So basically, I think I'm Merrily We Roll Along's biggest champion. Yeah. Probably. Probably. Okay, here's why. So... The year is 2007. It is my high school graduation, and I am the valedictorian. And I receive, as a graduation gift from Catherine Twaddle of the University of Manitoba faculty, who is also a, a longtime friend of my mom. Classic. A gift of the CD of Merrily We Roll Along, the first Broadway production. When you were valedictorian, mm-hmm. did the entire um, class that you were addressing start to go... <laughs> How did you get to be Be here? here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, they did not. But that would have been amazing. Like a flash mob. (laughs) They all knew. Staring at me. And they planned the OBC opening of Merrily for you. Okay, so you got the... And was it OBC or 94? It was the OBC. So it wasn't very many songs because the OBC is what? like 15 songs or something or the way that it was recorded it's yeah, very it's, seems very small and each each song has like three songs stuck together in it so i received that and i started listening to it without a ton of knowledge about the story other than i knew that it went you knew it went backwards i knew it went backwards right. that was all i knew and then i fell in love with probably the orchestration if i'm thinking back i was very moved by the sounds yeah. by the brassiness of it absolutely And I think that kept me really connected to it, so much so that I listened to it a lot. I listened to it when I was driving from Winnipeg to Edmonton by myself, moving there for theater school. Like it was so, I was so connected to it. It was beautiful, like driving through the Canadian prairies, Canadian prairies, and hearing "Merrily We Roll roll Along, Roll Along." And it's very (laughs) silly to think back and to be like, "Wow, you were so full of hope." So anyway, that's that first part. Cut to 2012 or 11, I guess. So we received an email from our program chair, the McEwen program chair, Jim Guido. And he sent us an email about what our season was going to be for our graduating shows. And it was uh, two plays, then we did Xanadu, and then we did Merrily. So it was kind of a full circle moment well for me. Well done, Jim. That's a well-programmed university season. It's That's pretty fun. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I knew right then and there that I had to audition for Mary. It was like yep. 
totally. my life's dream <laughs> at that it, point. Is that what you ended up hitting? Yes, yeah, it was. Great. And it was, in hindsight, I was still too young. Well, like it's I a university class. 23 so it's, or whatever. Like, it's not going to be age appropriate. Right. You're, it, you're doing it for different reasons. Yeah. Yes. So I felt like it was a great challenge musically. But anyway, yeah. I think I was very prepared in the sense that I think I knew it better than most people. But yeah, that was my relationship with the show. You guys didn't do the OBC version, though. No. Okay. Because no one does the OBC version anymore. Nobody does it anymore. You're not allowed to. No. Big illegal. So you have to do... They've done... A variety of rewrites, but I'm pretty sure the licensed version is the 92 London version because it hasn't technically right. been on Broadway since. And so now each subsequent licensed version has been that one. So, so I'm excited now that we can kind of talk a little bit about the synopsis. And I'd love for you to do that for us. So I'm going to synopsize the original Broadway cast. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about the change. I purposely know nothing about the changes made. All I know right now is the original Broadway cast of Merrily. Yeah. So I'm going to synopsize that. And that's what this episode, when we're talking about a production, that's what this episode is going to focus on, mm -hmm. is that OBC. But throughout, I'm hoping, Jill, that you'll be able to take us through what changes and what differences there are between this OBC, which bombed <laughs> enormously, <laughs> yeah, and the version that you did, mm -hmm. which by all accounts is much easier to swallow i don't even know yeah. if it's easier tbd on why but yes, okay. do you want me to okay here's my question yes for this game rather than setting a timer yeah. what if every time you say something that doesn't exist in the new version i just ding with my mouth perfect <laughs> yes let's do it okay ready okay yep okay so we um we open not on a blank stage <laughs> but instead on we got a bunch of risers mm -hmm. got a bunch of risers and there's um like a high school gymnasium um, Ding. And this, sure, totally, right? <laughs> yeah. Then this high school class sings mm -hmm. um, that sings this song. It's this like it sounds like a school song, mm -hmm. The Hills of Tomorrow. It's beautiful. And this guy comes out, the keynote speaker, yeah, or whatever. His name is Franklin Shepard, right? And he's a famous composer mm -hmm. of musical theater songs yes so ding for this whole like this, this whole yeah. thing except the name franklin and the circumstance that he's a composer okay um and he kind of gives like a weird keynote where he's like eh, life kind of sucks mm -hmm. the class begins to sing merrily we roll along and everything means to spin around yep spin around and all of a sudden we're moving backwards in time yep first place we go backwards in time and we're in a mansion we're yep. in franklin's mansion where mm -hmm. he's having a party this is where we meet mary Correct. Mary is a critic, mm -hmm. and she's drunk at this party. Correct. And she is um, being, like, real, real shitty. She's at his party, but <laughs> yes. it's like, oh, you haven't written a good musical in a while. Yep. Um, your musicals have kind of sucked lately. Okay, but is it shitty or honest? Like I both. guess both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess it's both. I mean, they, from, we get the impression that the opinion is very valid. Mm -hmm. It becomes clear very quickly there's some history here. Correct. And it's shitty, not necessarily because of the opinions, but because... It becomes clear that Mary and Frank maybe have some history, some kind of history together. Yes. And that's what's making this all weird. So then we meet Frank's, uh, we meet Frank's wife, Gussie. Yep. Someone mentions Charlie. Yes. This is all still all, all at this party. Someone mentions Charlie. Mm -hmm. And that's like a big, hmm. Yes. Because it becomes clear as well that Frank and maybe even Mary have history with Charlie. Yeah. And so Charlie is nowhere and to Charlie's be found. Charlie's nowhere here. Yeah. That's that. That's that. That's 1980 is what yes. it's supposed to be, at least. And then we move back another five years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think Ding in the timeline, I think they go back less in the new one. But in this one, we're five years. Yep. Mary and Charlie are having drinks. Ding again. Yeah. 
<laughs> but yes, okay, good. So this is the first time we're meeting Charlie. Mm-hmm. And Mary and Charlie, Mary's like, oh, we should, um, like, let's rekindle our, our friendship. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. And she set up this meeting because she knows Frank is going to be there. Yes. Also so, ding, but, you know. Yeah, but so she's asking, <laughs> she's asking Frank and Charlie to rekindle their friendship. Yes. So he's like, hey, Charlie, you should really, why don't you go over and see if you can make things up with, patch things up with Frank. Yeah. And Charlie goes over and for some reason thinks it would be a cute thing to ask Frank for his autograph. <laughs> as like a, hey, can we be cool again? Right. Because um, it's become clear at this point that they were, at some point, creative collaborators. Yes. Frank flips out about this, um, gets really angry at Charlie, mm-hmm. and we go back. Mm-hmm. Back another couple years, I think. Yep. Um, and right now, Frank and Charlie are now, this is the height of their creative power. Yes. Um, they've written a bunch of musicals together. Frank um, is like a kind of a, a mogul. He owns publishing companies. He mm-hmm. owns um, producing companies. And they're on this TV show doing an interview, and it becomes clear that there's just some serious cracks in this partnership that Charlie's feeling really weird about Frank. Yes. And finally, Frank's like, I have had enough of this and I'm out. And that's the dissolution of their partnership. Yes. Let's get back in time. We're um, another few years and now we are in an apartment, in Frank's apartment again, mm-hmm. with Charlie and Mary coming to see it. Yes, because he's just moved in. Yep, totally. And what is it? Frank's thinking of stopping composing, stop, of not writing anymore, I think. Yeah, but there's like a clear struggle for Frank in terms of purpose. Totally. Yeah. We meet their producer, Joe, and his wife, Gussie. The same Gussie who was uh, Frank's, who's going to be Frank's wife 10 years later. Yes, yes. And it becomes clear kind of at the end of this scene that uh, Frank and Gussie are already having an affair. Correct. Let's jump back again. We're going back in time further. good. Cut to Jason Alexander coming on stage and And saying... Jason Alexander (laughs) plays the producer. And saying like... Frank stole my wife, <laughs> like saying some all-knowing thing. And I'm like, Frank stole my Boo. wife, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a big ding. That got, yeah. that got axed. Yeah. So we jump back. Frank is being, um, Frank is getting divorced. Mm-hmm. This is a couple years before. Once again, we're always moving in reverse. Frank is getting divorced. Divorced. His wife already knows about his, um, the fact that he's having an affair with Gussie. Yes. And that's a whole big thing. And that's the end of act one. Yes. So. Act two, we're still moving uh, backwards. Um, We're a few years before, and it's the opening of Charlie and Frank's first Broadway hit, produced by Joe. We keep on going backwards. There's a party just before the opening. Mm -hmm. A bunch of stuff is happening. The the big important thing that happens here is like, this is the first time Gussie meets Frank. Yes. And things start to move between them. And eventually the party kind of gets to a point where Frank and Charlie go and um, sing. They're like, hey, play us a song from your um, your new piece. Yeah. And they sing... One of the nicest songs, one of the most well-known songs, the nicest songs from this show. I would think so. Good thing going. Oh, Beautiful love it. song, incredible, classic Sondheim. Crowd loves it, and then they're like, they start to play it again, and the crowd's not interested. Yeah. And that's the end of that. It's this very interesting thing where because we're moving backwards in time, yeah. these scenes have really weird dramatic arcs. Totally. It's a little, a little unsettling to even watch at times. I agree. So we're a couple years before, and now we're in a nightclub where um, Charlie and Frank, Beth, who is Frank's um wife at the time who divorced him when he was having an affair with Gussie. Yep. Their piano player. They're doing uh they're doing an act. Yes. In a nightclub. There's like not many people there, but Mary is there. <laughs> they do a whole bit. And we just we kinda we meet our players. We're we're doing Yeah. This is fuck, it's wild because they really did just do a play in reverse. Mm-hmm. Like this is scene two <laughs> or scene three when we start to meet all our main players. That's right. But we find out Mary's actually there for what's gonna happen after their show that night. Right. Which is the wedding. Yep. Um, because yeah. Beth is pregnant, so Beth Beth and Frank get uh, get married. Yep. 
We're going to go back a couple more years. And we have a sequence that's like, that's right, because we have this sequence that that's like, these are these three people mm-hmm. becoming their professional selves or like re- reaching right. their heights. It's like a, a montage that spans a not insignificant amount of time. I can't yeah. remember what exactly it is, but it's like, like a few years, like a I few think. years of all of them, of Charlie and Frank writing and, and of Mary we, like writing journalism. And we meet Beth at the end of the song, <laughs> which is kind of wonderful. It's yeah. so well crafted. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the only semi autobiographical thing that Sondheim has ever written. Which he actually this is what said. He said. I know. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is amazing. Yeah. And then it flops and he writes a very <laughs> personal, non autobiographical uh, play about creation. We'll get into it. Um, we're almost done though, because once again, this would be at the very start of the show. This is place setting. Yes. Um, if we were doing this in chronological order. And then finally, we're on the apart we're on the roof of an apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the night of the Sputnik launch. That's the night of the Sputnik launch. <laughs> you want to date it? Jeez. I know. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, though, to use that? Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> and you just had to get up on the rooftop of your New York apartment to see it happen. Uh, Charlie and Frank are like kids at this point. Mm-hmm. They're in their early 20s, and they're talking about how they're going to change the world. Mary finds her way up there. Yes. And this is the first time the three of them meet. Oh, um, I could cry thinking about this scene. And it's this, the moment that, fuck, I can see why it would be especially emotional for as you're finishing a university program. Uh-huh. Because it is that feeling of, that you get when you're wrapping up a, at least an arts program. Yes. Like, am I the best? Am I going to change the world with my art? <laughs> I kind of think I am. And Because you just, yes. your skills are the sharpest they're ever going to be. And mm-hmm. you don't have any of the life experience to... <laughs> navigate anything but you're like oh i'm awesome yeah and it's just more more to the point it's it just feels like there's that feeling of endless possibilities that this is as well yep um and it's especially sad because this show is actually brilliant if you put that at the start of the show (laughs) it's just very sweet you put at the end it's so poignant because we know everything that's coming we know what a rough road it is we know that they're going to live real life just like we all live real life with a lot Mm -hmm. of fucked up shit and bumps and twists and turns some rides are easy yes (laughs) (laughs) it's very quotable finally we go back to the graduation and we've got sure yeah yeah and we've got like and in the and we've got like some parallels in the obc yeah of um young a younger frank and older Frank, mm-hmm. like graduation, graduation. Yeah. Yeah, we sing The Hills of Tomorrow one more time. Oh. And then the very yep. end is, because every time we change time periods, mm-hmm. we get another merrily we roll along. Um, and that starts with what I started the episode with. It's these horns going, I'm not sure if you could tell from my amazing <laughs> singing. It's these horns going, ba, 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 da, da. And then the merrily we roll along reprise starts. Yeah. And that vamp kind of begins, because we're just going to keep on going. We're just going to keep on rolling along. And it ends in a really sparse way, right? Yes, like it absolutely. plays that phrase like a couple times and then it goes like ba 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 and then like a timpani or something, right? Yeah, yeah, Am absolutely. I imagining that? No, you're not you're not ends? at all. It's it seems very Hal Prince, but I can't speak to exactly why I feel that. Maybe we right. can you can help me identify that. But it's something there's something about it that's like this is Hal Prince and Sondheim's last collaboration. Yeah. Firth too, actually. Okay, you probably feel that way because Sondheim's creative process is similar to, spoiler alert, the last episode of The Sopranos where it just cuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. I think the Hal Prince contribution possibly to that orchestration at the end was a little more of like putting some sort of button on it, but not a like true button. So it was the question mark. Mm-hmm. button 
But I don't know. Maybe that's it. <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely it. <laughs> wow. Kay. Okay. What a synopsis. I'm so impressed. Yes. So you nailed it. I don't Great. think there's any reason for me to read what I have, which is basically, oh, it goes backwards in time and it follows these three friends. The end. Totally. Yeah. Like, yeah. Nailed it. So as you could hear, listeners, I yeah. dinged a few times, yeah. but a lot of the music actually remains true. The yeah. only additional songs that I could think of there's a growing up, I think is what it's called. Yeah, sure. Doesn't exist in the OG, if sure. I'm not mistaken. No, I don't think the it does. Gussie version. There's a Gussie version. No. There's a Frank version yeah. that he sings in his new apartment before everyone gets there. It's really beautiful by himself at the piano. Because a lot of the time in this musical, they're doing the reprises before the songs. Yes. They literally have just built it like a show that would run chronologically. It's so cool. It's so cool. Okay, so in terms of history... Yes. Uh, my understanding is that... So Hal Prince's wife said to him, you should do a show about teens or something. Because I think Annie was probably not that... Annie's a thing. The other thing that might be in play is that Chorus Line's the biggest musical of all time mm -hmm, right now. Mm -hmm. Which I know is not specifically about teens, but is... Younger people is yeah. contemporary at the time is a very contemporary sound. Yeah. I think this owes a lot to Chorus Line mm. in its non-traditional narrative. Right. And obviously in its sound, Jonathan Tunick is a young guy who had just done a bunch of like half the orchestrations for Chorus Line or something like that and is doing using the exact same incredible brilliant strategies yes. here. This is Jonathan Tunick is in the process of changing the world with <gasps> these orchestrations. You can hear it. <laughs> it's so amazing. So, so anyways, yeah. So Hal Prince's wife is like, Hey, you guys should do a show about teenagers. I don't know much about his wife. Was she an artist? Because it's kind of funny to think of her as not. And then being one of those people that's like, oh, you know what would sell really well? Or you know what would be really good to do? Like, you know what I mean? Those yeah, folks absolutely. who are just like tangentially connected <laughs> to theater. So like, is Merrily We Roll Along basically just Jason Robert Brown's 13? Or is it Carrie, <laughs> but like... <laughs> yeah. Because it's kind of the same time. It's kind of the same design. It is. That's right. Anyway, we could talk about that for hours. That's so funny. So that was kind of the beginnings. And she also then said to Hal, oh, you love that play. What's that play that you love? Merrily We Roll Along by Kaufman and Hart. You love that play. Right. And he was like, you're right. I do love that you play. You love that play? And uh, that play was set, the graduation was 1916. And then it follows through until the, I don't know if it goes through to the Second World War, but it follows, I think, through both wars. Yes. But it also works backwards. Yes. So it goes, And it's not yeah. about theater writers. No, it's about a painter yeah. and... Is it a playwright or a painter and a it's it's artists but not yeah. composer team. Yeah, one artist, second artist and journalist. Yes. Is the combination though always. Yeah. yeah. Totally. So that's what it's based on. So they have Sondheim and Firth, George Firth Great. who did the book for Company. Absolutely. They have them reuniting. Yeah. So which... this is a bunch of the team from Company. We've got um we got Tunic back on orchestrations. I'll always mention him first. Hal's back. Sondheim's back. George Firth is back. The boys are back in the town. The boys are back in town. <laughs> and we're just coming off of Stephen Sondheim's biggest hit, still arguably to this day, his best musical, mm -hmm. Sweeney Todd. Yeah. We're talking height of compositional power. So they decide to do this thing. And then there's all this amazing footage that exists from the audition process. So they auditioned like thousands of kids. Sure. And I say kids, but I think the youngest was like 15. And then Jeez. the oldest person they cast was like maybe mid-20s. 
Wow, 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 wow. Mid to late 20s. Yeah. So they've got all these young people auditioning. And the way that they tell them that they booked it is so reality TV. They call them all into this one room. And Hal Prince is like standing in the middle of the circle. And he's like, oh. well, you're you're all in the show. And then they like scream and cry. Yeah, and it's happy. like so adorable. But it's very like search for the next L Woods. <laughs> like it's very. <laughs> At least they didn't call them in and say like, Half of you were in the show. Right. Oh, jeez. You know? <laughs> that would have been really something. But all of this footage was never intended to be used in that way. It was just, I think, like archival for the history of musical theater. Like, Great. I don't know what the intent of capturing it was. Yeah. Anyway, it exists. It's precious. So they didn't have money for out-of-town tryouts. So they extended previews. They they just kept doing previews. Yes, they, That's why they had 44. So the entire workshop process for this piece took place in New York City. Yes. Which is really significant because in doing that, from what I understand, mm-hmm. they weren't able to access a chiller market Yep. in the development process like yep. you potentially would in Chicago or Boston or wherever. Mm-hmm. And instead, the entire preview process was <laughs> under Brutal. scrutiny from the <laughs> very intense kind of snobbish New York theater industry. Yes. And word of mouth. I mean, yeah. we know how this works. People are uh, maybe love, wanting to see the Wonderkin Sondheim fall on his face a little bit. Or maybe yes. kind of... And, and Hal Prince, right? Totally. Yeah. There was also some dramatic changes as far as casting. They replaced Jim Weissenbach yeah. with Jim Walton. Or James with Jim. But they're both mm. James anyway, so it doesn't matter. And I bet the cast didn't know because they were like, oh, you're Jim too? Cool. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Wasn't it like halfway through previews though? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, is Jim coming in today? Yes. No further questions. Great. (laughs) See you on stage tonight. Yes, he is coming in. So that happened. And then I believe they also brought on a new choreographer. Yeah. And that's because the show does not go up easy. Yes. Like even beyond the... Poor public reception to the previews. Mm -hmm. Like it's a a difficult room. There's maybe some personal tension, some personal conflicts. Absolutely. um, That make the, you know, that's maybe even par for the course if you're hiring some like younger performers. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a troubled production, to say the least. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, this was a lot of like last collaborations, like you said, with these folks. So I think this is a pretty clear picture as to maybe why that was, that would happen. Oh, that's an excellent point. It doesn't make me go, what? I can't believe they would never work together again. I think it's like, mm-hmm. I think it gives us a roadmap as to why some collaborative relationships do end. And it's not a bad thing because yeah. they do all go on to continue working mm-hmm. and creating. How how Prince hasn't hit his height yet. Right. Um, he's still got a bit ways to go. No one's even calling him yeah. the Prince of Broadway yet. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that's a fact. They're just calling so- him Harold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much more history than that. That's, but, yeah, totally. But so I think that gives us a good picture. That's what we're going in with. And then it just gets obliterated on opening by oh, critics. Big time. Um, as soon as those previews started, there was no win, is the impression I get. There's no I way I agree. Because they would have had to know pretty early on in their run that it wasn't going well. And that carries over from previews, for sure. And then Stephen Sondheim immediately begins writing a musical about how art can cost you everything in your personal life. Yes. And how hard it is to create something meaningful and also maintain any kind of semblance of a normal life and normal relationships. <laughs> Which is a coincidence, I'm sure. Art is easy, right? Every word, every line. 
one. It's a major decision. Yeah, exactly. Have to <laughs> something. Dun, dun, have to hold to your vision, right? Yeah, Isn't that exactly what that, something like that? So I wonder where that came from. <laughs> I'm just in love. I've, once again, because this is my first time discovering this, I'm sure people who have had this in their heads before are like, yes, Paul, welcome to the party. Right, but just sure. Sunday in the Park with George in conversation with Marilee OBC yeah. is so interesting to me. And I'm a person who completely ignored Sunday in the Park. you're not huge on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Or men in general. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but I think because I was so fixated on, on Marilee and I just connected yeah. with it, I, I think I, yeah, kind of ignored Sunday. I'd love to discover it now, though. As a grown human who struggles with boundaries. <laughs> Jill, you're going to listen to it. You're going to love it. I don't know what to tell you. I know. It's going to be great. <laughs> David's favorite song is is finishing the hat. Yes, because he finishes the bike. That's true. Finishing he does. The bike. He gets it. It's pretty epic. And of course, I'm sure the listeners can understand why we're so passionate about this, yeah. about this topic, about this history. We we don't often get a chance to discuss Sondheim. We've only talked about him once before um, with Anyone Can Whistle. We're what, uh, 45 minutes in? Let's start talking about <laughs> the show. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Book by George Firth. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Who? Yeah, I know. From the play by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. And the music was orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best of the best. This is a Jonathan Tunick appreciation podcast. <laughs> Exclusive. We're wearing tunics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so tell me, Paul, about your thoughts and feelings. So music and lyrics first, they rule. They're yes. awesome. Um, like 10 some out of, of 10. Ten, literally 10 out of 10. Yeah. No notes. Um, this is, I think, my favorite Sondheim, my favorite era of Sondheim. There's no era of Sondheim that I think is bad. Because mm-hmm. he's such a such a strong composer that it the value of it like shines. Yes. No matter what. Company I like uh, I like a lot because it's like a little rough around the edges, but it's just drenched in like this 70s <laughs> um, yes. this 70s feeling that's so of the time that I love. Maybe I don't love Forum. That might be the one. Mm. I like I like Forum. I don't love Forum. I agree. It's a it's a product of its time though too, right? Oh, and yeah. where Sondheim mm. was at in his creative process, Absolutely, right? right? Early days. But when we get to this point, he has nothing to prove anymore. <laughs> yeah. Especially post uh, Sweeney. Right. Like he's he's changed the world with Which Sweeney. Is so he's funny changed because- the landscape. Okay, so he does Sweeney, yeah. and he does Marilyn, and it's like, eh, whatever, mm-hmm. to most people. And then he's like, hold my beer. And then yep. he does Sunday and Into the Woods. Yes. Like three years apart. I almost, it seems like Marilyn's like a dividing point. Yeah. I would consider like Sunday the start of the the third act of Sondheim's career. Yes. You know? Yes. Whereas this is the end of the second act, and that's my, what I'm saying mm. is the second act is my favorite act. Cool. And this this music just rules is what it I'm slaps. getting around to. The Merrily We Roll Along theme is an incredibly strong theme. Old Friends Slash Like It Was does too. Banger after fucking banger yeah, in this show. it's true. Franklin Shepard Inc. rules. <laughs> if you're a person who's never seen this show, you've probably heard Not A Day Goes By though. Yeah. Right? That's the um, most sung one, I would imagine, from this show. Right? Or Good Thing Going... Like I've done good thing going, maybe it's but just I haven't circle, heard anybody the circles else we move really in doing is it. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. Good thing going is so music and lyrics, and the, the lyrics are like the some of the most clever little turns of phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like the classic Sondheim turns of phrases. Yes. So no notes, ten out of ten. The book 
I'm, it's a big surprise that it's from the same person who wrote the book for Company. Correct. It seems like a night and day thing. Company is so clever. And so once again, like of its time in a big way, this book seems functional at best. The thing I love about Company, yeah. about the book, is that the show could exist without the music. Yeah. Because, yes. because it's written so well. Yeah. This could not exist without the music, yeah. this book. It's not a bad thing, but it just is the thing that stands out for me as the the thing that's participating the least in the creative telling of this story. That's exactly right. That's really interesting. I wonder what it is. What is happened? It, uh, so it's been 11 years. Mm-hmm. So time. Yeah. Maybe Firth doesn't like teens. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Firth, because Company's not an adaptation, right? Nope. Maybe nope. that's okay. the challenge, is Firth working within the bounds of an adaptation rather than yep. an original piece like Company was. You could be very correct. Um, But yeah, very few interesting turns of phrases or musings on the nature of this or that, which is what's so charming about Company is these big long yeah. scenes where Bobby's friends talk to Bobby about the nature of relationships. Yeah. And what it means to be in a relationship, both good and bad. Yeah, and it just doesn't show up so much in this book. No. Which is, I mean, there would still be, there would hopefully be room for ruminations on the nature of close friendships and creative mm-hmm. collaborators. But the book definitely doesn't serve that. Yeah. The book is uninspiring, but it's not, like, bad. Yeah. Like, there, and obviously George Firth is a strong writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, the the book is the biggest problem, and it's not even bad. It's just yeah. not as functional, and I'm, I think the changes they made were appropriate. It maybe could be a little bit clearer where we are in time at any given point. I found myself getting a little confused trying to hang on to where we were in the arc. I think I have a point about that in design. Yeah. Okay, good. So, oh, yeah, that's right. Table that. Design. <laughs> so I just have one, because we obviously agree Yeah. out of 10 playbills... 10 monkeys for the music and lyrics, maybe even 12. I was going to say possibly his best score, but it's literally there's like five scores tied for first. <laughs> but like, it's, it's awesome. There's, yes. Yeah. I love this. I would watch the shit out, listen to the shit out of the score any day of the week. Yeah. And then the book is like, to me, maybe a six. Would you give it less? I would give it a five. Okay. It doesn't do, um, doesn't do any harm. It doesn't help the show. It just exists right in the middle as a five. <laughs> yes. So that's my, that's my take. At Great. Least. Okay, the last thing I'll say about the book Music and Lyrics is that there's this quote from the New York Times review that Frank Rich wrote, and it says, it's so precious. It says, quote, as we all should probably have learned by now, to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. Wow! (laughs) But I think that's kind of true. It's an interesting look into this time. We can look back on it because we know what's coming. Mm Mm-hmm. But like at the time, watching his the arc of his career. Yeah. You're like, frogs? Yeah. Really? I right? don't know. Frogs no, is, yeah. is coming, isn't it? It is. It's in, on its in way. A, in a little while. But yeah. like, yeah. Like we don't know <laughs> Sunday and Into the Woods and Assassins <laughs> right. are going to be the end of his Broadway career. You yeah. Know? And like passion. And well, like, passion's right? Passion's still coming. Do Absolutely. I mean? Right? But yeah. I, th- I thought that was really funny because I think there's a lot of people... Even myself, I, f- I find myself defending Sondheim a lot because there's yeah. people who still feel that way, will always feel that way. Really? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I could see why maybe this just didn't take off. So real quick, before we move on, mm-hmm. when there were the, the version you know yep. of this show, so it doesn't start with the graduation at the beginning. No. Where does it start? So we hear the overture. Yeah. 
thank goodness. Great. And then we go right into Merrily, the song, the opening song. And it's all the party guests. Into the party. Into the party, Great. right into the party. And then it ends with me and you, me and you right. from uh, our time. And I think that's it. That's where it ends. And then it doesn't end with the graduation either. Nope. You just go into bows. Are most things kind of, do we hit mostly the same points throughout the body of the show? Yeah, there's no, um, the scene at the restaurant at the beginning doesn't happen. It goes right from the party to the TV station. Oh, okay. There is, the, the scene kind of exists still, like what would have happened at the restaurant with Charlie and Mary sort of like saying, oh, how are we going to talk to Frank? Like right. there's some there's some scene lit that happens and then we go to the TV station, but it's it's not as fleshed out as the restaurant very, scene, which is good because it keeps things moving. But still establishes this relationship is these relationships are in total disrepair. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it better? What makes that version? Mm-hmm. Or should we should we save that for the end of this? I might want to save okay, that because I think I ha- I know the answer. Well, but I the think these it goes first. in another category. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Okay, let's yeah. do it. Okay, here we go. We are moving into the direction and choreo. Yes. So, directed by Harold Prince, literally the Prince of Broadway, and we just talked about him in our last <laughs> episode when we talked about Phantom. Yes. Music direction by Paul Gemignani. Yes. The best the, of the best. The legend, um, Sondheim's resident musical director. Yeah. I was looking, re- reviewed his bio for this as well, um, for this episode. Holy shit. Yep. If you take out all the Sondheim stuff, he still had the best career. <laughs> right? It's incredible. It's His contributions are amazing. Yeah. I would consider him the king of Sondheim interpretation. Absolutely. Because it's like he just understands the nuance of the it. phrasing and just yep. uh, choreography was by Larry Fuller. So yes. Larry Fuller was brought on during previews, I think, to fix a little bit. Did he, though? Question mark. Here we go. Let's see. Okay. What are your thoughts? Thoughts and feelings on direction and choreo? Um, Direction is nice. Here's mm-hmm. a hot take. Um, Hal Prince knows what he's doing. He knows how to stage a scene. Mm-hmm. He knows how to... I think this is a tough piece because you've got these younger performers mm-hmm. having to literally perform a life in reverse. Yes. So they can't even get there. They have to start in their most uncomfortable place mm-hmm. and back up into their realm of experience. <laughs> yes. This is something that I think... Um, we'll get into it in performances a little bit, but I think potentially hurts this production. Mm-hmm. But even with that, like Hal Prince has put it together in such a way that it plays fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was maybe, yeah. like I mentioned, I was maybe a little confused about where we were in time sometimes. Yes. But I was, I was always very clear on like, this is how each character is feeling in each individual scene. Right. Like each, each scene played well. The arc of the whole piece, I had some trouble with. Mm-hmm. Choreo, I thought it was the old friends dance was charming. Yep. Now you know it was charming. I thought it rocked. Oh, okay. Ha! <laughs> and those are my only observations on the choreo. I get the sense you feel a certain way. <laughs> okay, yes okay. to the direction. Oh, I agree. Great. Yeah. He's very good at directing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the end. Like, I don't... Like the... It's very... The, the scenes make sense. Yeah. He knows, he knows how to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that it, nothing is too still. Yeah. Like things are kind of moving. So even if you are in a location longer than an audience wants to be, the scene Mm. is still moving. So I I can appreciate that. And a few times you're in the locations. These are long scenes. They are. Yeah. 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 So I appreciate that. Yeah. The choreo I liked a lot of actually. Great. But some things pulled me completely out of it. Like what? Uh, the dance break in Now You Know. They're literally outside the courthouse. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you why I don't buy it. Yeah. Sure. I think... The structure of it is fine. 
I think the feeling of my friends are trying to bolster me and help me get over this divorce. Yeah. I think that's the right convention. But I think Frank bought in too soon in the movement. And so then there was this conga line and this like partner dance and the dance break went on forever. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. You would be arrested for doing a conga line outside a courthouse. Like, I don't understand why this is happening. And he's already bought in. He bought in midway through the song. So the dramatic movement of the rest of that is done. Correct. And So for me, just it peaked too soon. That's my feeling on that specific thing. The other thing I didn't love was the transitions. Yeah. So anytime they sing the Merrily motif, yeah, reprise, motif, the ensemble would come on. A massive ensemble, by the way. Yes. It's huge. Absolutely. They would come on and they would do like, sort of like a screen wipe or swipe thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a like a like an improv swipe. Yeah. Basically. Okay. And great. It's like, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so they would do their version of that, and I thought it was fine at times. Like they would be nicely spaced, or they would do very minimal movement, which is would be my go-to. But then they would do like another conga line or another like 80s like shimmy thing. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, this ver- this dates it in a way that I'm like, we know better now. <laughs> or do we? I don't know. No, we- but, but I feel like it's just a product, again, of its time. Like you see it- those glimpses of the 80s aerobic movement. It makes it feel like more dated than what would we do without you from company or something. I know. You know what I mean? Like five years, six years before. Kind of similar. Yeah. I I buy that. I, what happened with the choreo? (laughs) Like, why did they replace the, I don't know. Does anyone know? Uh, Someone knows. Well, obviously someone like, that's not (laughs) documented necessarily in any of the Things about the failure of Merrily. I don't remember the documentary. So here's the other thing, listeners. I remember watching the documentary about this production because there was one made by Lonnie Price, who was in the original cast. He made this documentary about the circumstances surrounding this production. It was called Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, which is a play on a line from Now You Know, which is the Mm -hmm. Act 1 finale. And... Uh, it was an originally a Netflix documentary, but it's no longer on the platform. So I really struggled. I couldn't find. Really? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't find a copy and I was very sad. So I haven't watched it yet. I'm probably going to oh, watch it tonight or tomorrow, but I. It's beautiful. So if, if you can yeah, yeah. slime it sure. or, you know, Sneak if you can find yeah. one, I would love for you to see it because it's very beautiful. But maybe there's something in there that I've forgotten. Yeah. Because that was like five or six years ago that I watched it. So sure. it's been a minute. Because it seems like. I'm having trouble putting my finger on it, but there's something that doesn't quite work with the direction mm-hmm. and choreo here. Um, and maybe you're right. Part of it is like the choreo isn't always serving the dramatic line. Yeah. And in the, a show like this, the dramatic motion is so important because yes. you're literally moving like you're swimming against the top, against the current the yeah. whole time. You're swimming. There's a whole dramatic, a whole series of like dramatic motion moving in the opposite direction. Yes. Correct. And I don't think they nail that with this production. Yeah. So I think that's my main issue in that regard. Yeah. And and I don't know. Like, I, I say that as a person who does this for a job. So yeah. <laughs> I have my own feelings about how I would have done it that are clearly getting in the way of me fully appreciating yeah. maybe what was done. But no shade. Also, just, also it's my what feeling. is it? This is 40 years ago at this point? Oh, my God. I can't right? Let's <laughs> chew on that. Yikes. Like, we're coming yeah. at this from a very different aesthetic and uh, yeah. mindset. You're exactly Just in right. the way we put together theater these days versus the way you did in the early 80s. So true. I think it worked. It seems to have worked even less for the audiences at that time. Mm-hmm. So if you had to give it a rating, Jill. Uh, I think I'd like to keep them together. Yeah, I can do that. I, I'd say together it's like a seven. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Direction 7, 7.5, choreo 5 six, or 6. 5 or 6, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd, I'll settle on that. Great. Yeah. Good great. job, us. Good job, us. Okay. Design. Here we go. Scenic design by Eugene Lee. Costume design by Judith Dolan. Lighting design by David Hersey. I almost misread that as Hershey and was going to make a joke about his delicious chocolate. Sound design. <laughs> sound design by Jack Mann. Makeup design by Richard Allen. Hair designed also by Richard oh. Allen. And projection consultant was Westerfield Quit Productions Limited. Okay. So while we're on that, where was the projection couldn't tell you okay i'm not sure good i i didn't super notice it also but the, the also the slime is obviously it's a 1980s someone VHS snuck tape. a like a tape recorder the yeah. size of two toasters in so <laughs> who um can, yeah um costume design 10 out of 10 obviously 12 out of 10 15 out of 10 anyone okay <laughs> so it sounds like you and i might both agree that the scenic design was fine oh yeah like, absolutely you know, the bleachers thing. Great. I made a joke about it a few episodes back where yeah. like Hal Prince stubs his shin on a theater tour and he's like, <laughs> oh, bleachers. What an ingenious and idea. And here they are again. And here they are again. It's like functional. Um, I, I wasn't crazy about the rolling pieces for the restaurant and sure. like some yeah. of those other random things. But yeah. It's nice to watch an older show after like doing so, watching so many pieces that involve automation. Yes. Yeah. Just something on Broadway that's not automated. Yeah. Just people moving things around the stages. Yeah. Was a breath of fresh air almost for me. I do love that. Yeah. Okay. So when you talk about not knowing where you were in time. Yes. To me, that's a, a flaw of the costume design. Right. Because did you see pictures of what they were wearing? Yeah. Can you describe it for the listeners? They're wearing sweatshirts. Correct. They're wearing sweatshirts that describe... Who they are, not their names. Correct. But their relationship in the trio. Yes. Or like their relationship to Frank. Like so, Charlie's relationship to Charlie says the best friend. Best friend, a, best yeah. friend, and best friend, right? Yeah, On totally. all of those three sweaters. Yeah. Then there's like wife or like other woman, right? Yeah. There's some like, I don't, I, I wish I remembered exactly what they said, but they, they the, all the, say. The only, the only pictures I could find were the best friends one and I've seen the other ones described. Yeah, yeah, that's what they all wear. And then I, if I'm not mistaken, there were maybe a few elements layered on top. Yeah. But not a lot. Yeah. So to me, it makes sense why you wouldn't have been able to keep track yeah. of where you were because you were literally just looking at track sweaters. That seems like the worst possible solution. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. If the note is people are having trouble figuring out who is who. Yeah. In this show and figuring out the relationship. Mm -hmm. As we discussed in the synopsis, it's maybe even kind of a pleasant twist as you figure out what's going on here. Yes. And so instead, make, making that explicit in a way that takes you out of the reality uh -huh. of the show. And already we're kind of unreal. So it's like giving you an extra bit of destabilization. Correct. And does nothing to acknowledge the actual confusing part about this show, <laughs> which is that it's moving fucking backwards in time. Like, the problem was not, we don't understand that they're friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? The other thing that I, I find so funny about sweaters is that they're inherently young. <laughs> like, like, teens wear sweaters. And, like, like a track sweater. Like, a, yeah. like an American apparel sweater. So, so if you're concerned about making these kids have the arc... Yeah. Why are you putting them in something that is young and youthful? Especially when they have to start. The, <laughs> the first major scene is 
um, successful composer at this big party in his swanky apartment. Yeah, it's so Give him funny. a smoking jacket. Give him a, you so know what I mean? It's funny to me. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. I love it. It's a... A choice that's so bold, it yeah. almost comes back around and works again. I was just going to say. I, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work. I'm actually but it's like, close. <laughs> but I'm down to try it in some context. Absolutely. But maybe just not this one. Yeah. So yeah, for me, that's a big, that's a big uh, struggle too. It's a huge struggle. Yeah. Because it just doesn't help us follow no. anything. I think it actively hurts. That's it. That's Once the, again, because yeah. I want, you couldn't tell on the, um, on the video that we watched what the sweaters were. Mm-hmm. So my impression not having the sweaters was not too bad. my impression with the sweaters would have been baffled I think yes and then uh in terms of every other design element we can't super speak to them nope um I could hear what people were saying yep despite the fact it was an old slime so absolutely so that's that's probably it's probably a great sound design good job (laughs) good job sound the hair was 80s oh yeah Mm -hmm. and because of that I didn't see like wigs or anything so I wonder if maybe they all had the same hairstyle through out oh no maybe they had wigs i can't remember i can't remember either but yeah Yeah. so that's my feeling yeah functional design i don't think the design was ever the the thing for this show yes you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there was other other things in play that were going to be like the 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 cool thing 100 percent. um but then the sweatshirts kind of are so weird (laughs) so weird and so funny (laughs) i kind of want one that says like best, best friend, friend on it. You guys, we should get monkeys and playable sweatshirts. That'd be that too also, cute. Three sweatshirts that all say best, best friend. friend. Oh, I love this. But it has to be the same font. It's oh, that it has, weird. It has I can't to be even literally describe the Merrily sweatshirts. Yeah. yeah. If we were going to rate it. Yeah. 15 out of 10, 20 out of 10. <laughs> like for the audacity like, to have. so bad it's good. <laughs> I just. I can agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sweater person myself, so <laughs> um, I would say overall, though, yeah. design in general, probably like a seven. Yeah. I'm, seven and a half. I'm happy to settle on that. Let's move on to the next category. <laughs> this category is called performances. All right. So I'm not going to name everybody because, like I said, it was a pretty massive ensemble but one of the original nepo babies daisy prince was involved yeah she played meg who is uh at the beginning of the play we meet a young actress at the party that it appears that maybe frank and meg are having some sort of affair so that's daisy prince's role also we mentioned George Costanza, who's in this we did also in this is a young Giancarlo esposito Yes, from that's uh, right. Breaking Bad Fames. That is mm-hmm. right. Those are the big names in um, quotation marks that are. And then there's like Broadway names Lonnie yep, Price, of course. Yep. Jim Walton. And then the person who wrote Stars of David was also in this Abby. Gabby Alter. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of connections to work in theater, but not a lot of them went on to have those sort of like storied. Broadway careers. No, almost none of them. We're not talking like a Mandy Patinkin or something. No. You know? I really like all three of the uh, friends. Totally. I think that um, Jim Walton is great. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Lonnie Price, Franklin Shepard Inc. is a hard oh. song. It's um, it's essentially not getting married. Absolutely. Except without the long breaks. Like not getting married, <gasps> sure. the advantage is... You do the bit, then you hide under a table while they do, bless this time. Okay, but and would you... And then today is for Amy. 
What about the parts where the interviewer says things and then he goes, That's true. money? Did I say money? Yes. So it's, he's you still do, there. You do, you do get to catch your breath a bit. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. More than great performances. I think that Anne Morrison as Mary slays the almost end of act one. Oh my gosh. Um, that's it's just outstanding. Ugh, the best. So like she's maybe even of the three. Yes. Is like the, the standout for me, which is wild because she didn't stay in the Broadway community after this. I thought she did. I thought she did. Well, or maybe the, not Broadway, but she did a lot of touring and I sure. think yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. some other shows, but I don't know how much more like originating she did. I believe I, if this any. is her only Broadway credit. Wow. Yeah. Wild. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Where for me, she's like the, wow, like the, the breakout in this piece. She is good. Yeah. yeah her and Lonnie, I would say. Yeah, um, absolutely. Lonnie's- And I uh, guess- Daisy Prince went on to, like, direct and stuff, right? A lot, yeah. Kind of. I mean, like, brought up Jason Robert Brown and became the future of, um... But that's all. Mm -hmm. Please listen to our Parade episode for a lot more about that. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... What about you? Where's your head at for the performances? So, a big flaw of the show in general is that the fact that you're asking teens and young adults to to perform in such a way with a... specific gravitas that can only come with age yes i don't know maybe that's small-minded of me to believe that young people can't find that but i just maybe think that they they just didn't because it's so broad of a timeline so you're in the unique position where you've had this experience correct you've performed this show at about this age correct what what was it like getting trying to drop into that I tend to in my life (laughs) and have tended to (laughs) perform things that were just a little bit like beyond my age. When you're young, you just want to grow up, right? And so you have all these ideas of of what it means to be a grown up. And of course, you can layer those onto any performance, but they aren't necessarily the good things about being grown up. And so... Mm Yes, you can know things or anticipate things that are coming, but you really just don't have yep. the full scope of the life experience. And I'm also not saying that I, in my current state, have the full scope either. Like, I still am not ready to play Joanne. I'm still, well, sure, <laughs> you know yeah. I still shouldn't be playing those roles yet. It'll be, it would be really challenging. It is really challenging to find, like, the, the sweet spot mm-hmm. of age. right. Would it change... Well, here, two two questions. Okay. First of all, what is the sweet spot for this show? Right. As far as age goes? Mm-hmm. Mid-30s? Yeah, that's my feeling. Because I'm, yeah. I'm not quite mid. I'm yeah. early mid. Yeah, you and, I, <laughs> 30s. you and I both. And I feel like I'm now just starting to go, I think I could tap in a little better than before. Does that change if you're doing... If Merrily was arranged chronologically? I don't know. Maybe. I think... It makes more, if it's chronologically, you can do it younger and it'll play a little better. Sure. But because the arc is in reverse yeah. and you need to start at the end, like <laughs> that's yes. such a problem. Right, that's because such you a have challenge. to launch in with that exactly. instead of build to. You have to launch. Got it. You have to launch in in your, how old are they supposed to be at the chronological end uh, of the story? In their 40s? late 40s, late, I right? think. Like they've lived a life mm-hmm. and then end in your 20s. Like to be, if you're starting in your 20s and you're in your 20s, I can go on the journey with you and get to your 40s at the end. Yes. But to start there. That's a good point. The other thing is that like, there are so few roles for older people in theater that it's like, I understand the 
youthful energy and wanting to have that be a part of the community. So maybe there's a balance to be found. Like maybe if you're pairing a younger person who reads a little older and then you have some like more established artists performing with, I think that might help balance it too. I don't know. I'm curious about that. That's so interesting. Lots of good ensemble work here. Yeah, the conga line, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the biggest ensemble this show will ever get. Yep. In its life. It doesn't need an ensemble that size at all. Or in my college class. Right. There was like so <laughs> many of us. But like the most, the recent broad, the new Broadway coming up, there's no way they're going to have that size. Oh, I don't know. Do we they? have to assume. I don't think so. Probably not. Like you could do this show with 12. I was going to say, right? I feel like that's probably the right amount. Yeah. Because people can play multiple like bit parts. Very easily. Because there's so much. So yeah, um, I would say the performances by the children was, it was very ha, good. Yep. It was better than, because they picked really excellent young performers, it was better than if they would have picked like mediocre ones. I yep. don't know. <laughs> I don't yep. know where I'm going with this. No, it's absolutely. Excellent, thoughtful performances from young folk. I think so. I think they did a real nice job casting. Obviously, there was a huge bunch of messiness there yep. with um, the two gyms playing Frank. Right. Um, But we can only rely on, we'll never be able to confirm or deny that for ourselves. Yep. There's no recordings that publicly exist in any shape or form of what what the first gym sounded like or was doing. So we can only rely on what people have to say. So I'd love to play the Tony game. Are you down? um, Oh, sorry. Performances out of 10 playbills. I don't know. Eight, nine. Great. Eight or nine. Sounded fantastic. I'll take it. Great. Good for them. Let's play the Tony game for 1981. 82. 82. Because this was November of 81, therefore it was not eligible until 82. So it's 1982. Yep. It's the 36th Tonys, hosted by actor Tony Randall. Maybe that's why he got the job. Because he was an actor? Because his name was Tony. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Producer Daph's not on. Producer Daph's not on mic for this episode, but she just gave me the dirtiest look. (laughs) That's so funny. Tony hosting the Tonys. So, you know how I talk about biggest upsets in Tony history? Yeah. And I talk, we talk a lot about the Into the Woods Phantom year. Yep. This is the other year that I often will talk about. Oh, sure. So, there's an amazing Vanity Fair article that I put a link to in my notes. But I'm wondering if we could maybe link it in our show notes. Yeah. And I'd love to send it to you after this. Please do. Because you'd be fascinated by it. Can't quite wrap my head around what's going on on Broadway right now. Yeah. Um, So, um, there were four nominees for Best Musical. Great. None of them are this. None of them are this. Yep, totally. Correct. One of them was like a show that was created and performed by like a small ensemble of sort of like indie actors. So you'll never guess it, okay. but it was called Pump Boys and Dinettes. Nope, wouldn't have gotten that one. First time I've ever heard of that. Very interesting. Deborah Monk was in the ensemble oh, cool. of that. So that okay. I thought was kind of a fun connection. Yeah. Um, and then the other three were pretty big shows in terms of how we still perform form them now yeah. and we still make movies of them we still make movies of them yes it's this weird period of time in my as i'm like going through my history where the rock musical boom has already happened like the 70s uh-huh. boom has happened yep but we haven't hit mega musicals and post this sondheim that's right. going to take over the rest of the 80s uh-huh so what's happening right now can you give me any more hints i'm trying to think of hints that don't give it all away one is a uh, not set in america like one is set in okay. italy i guess the other one is about a performance trio 
of women and they're doing beautiful work and then one of them gets fired why am i blank okay i'm, I'm blanking on all okay. of this okay give me so, one and see if it like that like puts me in time dream girls yes of course yes great and nine yes very interesting so great. and then the other nomination went to joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coach what yeah what so a those four. wild year so dream girls takes it no and this is nine the, takes it over dream girls nine takes it over dream girls wow this wow wow, is wow why i want you to read this article yeah of course that's so interesting very interesting so nine ended up taking best musical but then dream girls kind of took like best book and best actress best actor like more sure. things i think if i'm but not for mistaken. some reason didn't take best musical yeah so it was a very random competitive it's year so where these two very different musicals were pit, almost pitted against one another. The calm before the storm of the mega musical boom, right? Yes. What a fascinating time in Broadway history. So the other thing I looked up, so Marilee was nominated for Best Original Score at the Tonys. Good. Didn't take it, but was nominated. Did I think it? I think it was Maury Yeston. Yeah. <sighs> I think Maury Yeston won it. Okay, like nine's but, nice, but come on now. I know. Yeah. Okay, the other thing too was I looked up the Drama Desk Awards for that year. Because I was curious about how things played out there differently from the Tonys. Yeah. And Sondheim ended up winning a drama desk for Outstanding Lyrics. But then also, so did Maury Yeston for Nine. So I'm like, are you just giving these out to anybody walking by? Like, I'm very confused. <laughs> you get a drama desk and you get a drama desk. And like, we might be in a period of time where there's like some Sondheim backlash right now. We talked a little about yeah, how okay. the, maybe the reaction to Merrily was maybe kind of in reaction to the enormity of um, Sweeney and everything leading up yeah. to Sweeney. It's like everything in Sondheim's career leads to Sweeney and Sweeney's a peak. Mm -hmm. And then this is like, a, oh, that motherfucker. Right. You know? <laughs> you wronged us. Yeah. Even yeah, yeah, by yeah, yeah. somehow being successful for 10 years. And everyone's all bitter about it. Yeah. And maybe he's like, oh, but Maury Estin, this is the guy. <laughs> And Murray, Titanic. Yes, Murray Espin proceeds to be a really interesting composer. Interesting and, is the right word. Yep. I think Titanic's really cool. Titanic, um, Rags, and Nine, and, and Phantom. Phantom. Other Phantom. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Tunick did get a special award at like for a drama desk. Okay. Oh, sure. For I can only assume was for the orchestrations. It didn't say. It just said like honorary oh, just, award. Just being blah, great. Blah. Literally, Jonathan. Tunick, we just love you. You're changing Broadway right now. <laughs> yeah. Have a right. Have a drama desk. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So was that there? was that. Yeah. It was a pretty fascinating time That's on such Broadway. A fascinating time. Yeah. Uh, lots of great plays. Chorus line is still running. Is like at the end of its run? I think it would be near the end. Yeah. Yeah, lots of plays. From what I understand, and maybe some of our um, older viewers can speak to this a little bit more, what a different landscape Broadway is at this point mm -hmm. versus what it will be 10 years from now. Oh, gosh. When it starts to resemble the Broadway that we recognize. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very different thing at this point in time. Yeah. There's certainly more original musicals being composed. It's like more chances are being taken almost. Absolutely. I think... The musical as its own medium is standing up on its own two feet a little bit more than it does these days. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm, I don't mean that to be like, oh, we're not making good musicals anymore. No, That's of not course the case. Not. But just the fact that there is big discourse around Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> at, you know what I mean? And yep. his arc and the fact that people care enough about how Merrily is going mm -hmm. to be shitty about it, to gossip about it. It feels like the same discourse that was surrounding Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. But it's about a weird 
personal musical about three friends. Yeah. Rather than an epic, like, budget-busting yeah. blockbuster. Is there anything else you want to talk about with the show? They're making a movie right now. Oh, I was hoping you'd forget that you wanted to talk about that. <laughs> what it's, it's really, it's interesting to talk about, whether it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Because they're making it, like, it's Richard Linklater, right? And he's making Correct. it the way he made Boyhood. Yep. So, like, actually doing it over a period of several years. 20. Over 20 years. So they mm-hmm. filmed the end of the movie already. No, they filmed the beginning of the movie already. Yes. So this is where it's confusing because they're shooting the young stuff now. So yeah, so that's the end of the movie. The end, yes. Uh, and they'll be filming it over the next 20 years. Yes. And you think this is bad. <laughs> and I have no opinion on this, so you don't have to convince me, but I'm really interested why you think it's bad. I think I was just mad that they didn't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad they didn't I'm call Mary. you too. <laughs> I'm Mary. Absolutely. No. Okay, also there's a bit of drama surrounding yeah. it because I saw recently that they have a casting change. Sure. And I think it's one of the like smaller parts, but I could be wrong. That, could, but that, that can fuck everything on uh, think, when you're doing a project like this. Yeah, I think there was a casting change recently. So I have my feelings about making musicals into movies. I think that's yeah, what it is. And absolutely. especially Sondheim musicals. I'm like, they don't work really to me. Like right? the I'm... Sweeney movie, I didn't love. No, neither do I. I didn't love the Into, into the, the Woods, Woods movie. movie. No. Like, I don't know. Yeah, they're replacing Frank Shepard. Okay, so a big part. Literally the part. That's... Thank you, Daphne. Well, that potentially fucks everything. So right? they might have to start the clock again. That's wild. Give us room and start the clock. <laughs> um, there's also a Broadway revival coming. It's finally going to be yeah. back on Broadway. So it's off Broadway right now. Or they sure. did a limited run, I guess. Yeah. And then now it's getting transferred. And that's with Lindsay Mendez yes. playing Mary. Um, <sighs> stunning. Yes. No it's wonder they be... didn't call me. I get it. Yeah, she's like, amazing. She's she's amazing. Yeah. Um, and Daniel Radcliffe. Don't oh, shoot. What's the guy? Who's Charlie. Frank? Charlie. Thank you. Yeah. Playing Charlie. And who is it? Frank. Who's Frank again? Jonathan Groff. And Yay, Jonathan, Jonathan Groff. Groff. Mind Hunter. Oh, the Matrix <laughs> Resurrections. I just rewatched it. Oh yeah. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. <laughs> I do like Jonathan Groff. Jonathan Groff has had a really fun career. It's precious. But yeah, I yeah. hope to get to New York to see it. Friend of the podcast, Rafi Rosenberg, has a lot of big, beautiful thoughts about how nuanced and well well acted it was. Did she see it? Um, yes, thought, oh, she I did. She said hear. it was just like, she could not stop talking about how well acted it was. So okay. that that's a relief to me because that's what it hinges on, right? Absolutely. Well, because once again, it's, you need to be strong enough to swim upstream against the backwards moving arc. And I... I would assume when it's done properly, it's like nothing else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone donate on Patreon so that monkeys can, <laughs> we'll, um, we'll, we'll go there, we'll see shows, and then go back to the hotel every night and do a record like immediately after. An immediate record. Yeah, just oh, for geez. you, the fans. You just need to give us several thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we could do one of those group trips. <laughs> okay, I love okay. ending on that note. Yes, I agree. And so... I, I could talk again for days about this show. Yeah. So if you are a person who would like to do that, please reach out to us. Yeah. This show would be so nice in concert. Mm-hmm. I would just as easily go see it in concert as I would go see it staged. Same. Okay, Paul, question number one before we leave yep. everyone. Should this be a musical? 100%. Oh, 300%. Yeah. 500%. Yep. Great musical. Paved the way for 
last five years. We didn't even get into this in conversation with the last five years, mm. which I think it's also in conversation with, but that's for another time. Another time. Um, I think our listeners will be able to figure out why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should absolutely be a musical, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No um, question. And I think that's, I know what the answer is going to be as well. Do we, um, is this a flop? Is this a secret bop or is it so bad we have to make it stop? Bop, bop, secret, bop, bop, Not bop. so secret bop. This musical rules. Yes. It's great. I love it. It's fantastic. I've had a mix of Merrily We Roll Along and Franklin Shepard Inc. stuck like playing in a loop in my head. Yeah. Oh. It's perfect. I love it. Coming up next mm. is a very exciting episode. Yay. Because we're doing a live record you can come see. That's going to pop the details about that in the um, post show. Yep. But we're talk- can we say what we're talking about? Wait, we can? I thought it was a big reveal a for the live audience. So everyone knows we're talking about Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark finally. I am so scared. Oh, I'm so excited. Spider-Man to me is merrily to Jill, I think. I think you might be right. Um, Like, I love Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. I love the history of it. I love the behind-the-scenes info on it. I love the two versions that exist. And I know nothing. <sighs> and I'm so happy It's going to be really that. fun. I'm going to try to, I might try to bring slides. I'm going to try to make it like, Oh my gosh, some, Because I want to do something just for the live as well, right? That's nice. Like yeah. I want to, or like to have some visual examples because Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is one of the coolest shows to have existed on Broadway <laughs> in the last three years. Oh my gosh, I cannot yeah. wait because I feel the opposite. So... <laughs> If you would like to yeah. watch us live February 25th at the Crescent Arts Center upstairs, 9.30 p.m., what I recommend is that you come and watch Inhibition Exhibition in the Sanctuary beforehand, then you walk right upstairs, grab a drink, and watch our show. Absolutely. What a what a better way to keep warm um, during a cold February in Winnipeg. And for those of you who aren't in Winnipeg or maybe can't make it, we'll then after that be releasing the audio of that episode as a Muckers and Playbills episode. And we're also live streaming it. Ooh. So you can um, buy a ticket, pay for us to go see uh, any, <laughs> I almost said anything goes. Pay for us to go see Merrily We Roll Along in New York next summer. <laughs> Do you know something I don't know? <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. We wanted to give a special thank you to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this season of Monkeys and Playbills. We also want to thank our producing partners, the Crescent Arts Centre, for their support. To learn more about the different podcasts in the Village Conservatory family, visit villageconservatory.com or look up the Village Conservatory channel in Apple Podcasts. To learn more about the live recording of Monkeys and Playbills happening Saturday, February 25th, 2023, visit the link in our description or villageconservatory.com. Mm-hmm.